Beyond Governance, Making Sense of Doing Business in South Africa is proudly sponsored by Plus94 Research, the science of decision-making. A very good evening to all uh, and welcome to tonight's installments of Beyond Governance. My name is Nim uh, It's It's always a pleasure to be in your company on this uh, glorious, uh, rather cold Tuesday. Despite the cold weather, I, we continue to elevate the conversations that are in the best interest of the country. Uh, but before we delve into the bigger questions and issues, allow me to thank Simon and his team for a job well done. In the same token, uh, let me pay homage to my own team as we prepare to excite you about what is installed for you today. Today we are having a very interesting material, which I will share with, with, with our panelists as we engage with the outcome of the research done by Plus94 Research on the South African Justice uh, Polls. We will hear more about this, uh, we'll hear more about the public opinion survey, uh, which was conducted after the Constitutional Court passed the judgment sentence um, uh, that the former uh, president, Jacob Zuma, to spend uh, 15 months in prison and what has been the result subsequent to that. As we proceed, I mean, it is common cause that Zuma's incarceration sparked civil unrest in some parts of the country, some parts being, being a, a defining moment for me at least. As you recall, last week the country was embroiled in what can be defined as the worst violence in the post-apartheid South Africa. For South Africans who were privy to the mayhem witnessed in the 80s and 90s could attest to unsightly sight of poverty and destitute um, on what actually could happen if people are poverty-stricken destitute in terms of changing them from becoming law-abiding citizen to Anarchists that you've seen. The only difference, however, is that the events of the 1980s and 90s um, was based on what was justifiably opposed, or the majority of the country uh, population was justifiably opposed to a morally and ethically bankrupt system of apartheid. But I don't think we can use the same yardstick to measure what happened last w- last week. Uh, the popular view which I hold is that the civil unrest last week was not a popular uprising. This was um, insurgency that was propagated by few individuals. It was interesting that the looting took place in um, Houting in KZN, and more interesting that majority of South Africans majority of South Africans, I'm talking government officials, tax officials, business and the like, declare that, you know, this will not be done in our name. My argument is, if it was a popular uprising, the entire country would have been would have been burned out. Surely we still had men and women who said, not in our name. And and for that moment, I, I was proud to be a South African. Last week, I was one of those who almost hanged their head in shame because I was not proud to be a South African. It's not like we didn't know though that these issues uh, were, were coming. But I can just imagine from a leadership point of view, the president is expected, um, you know, or is experiencing a mounting pressure um, as, you know, he's expected to to, to deliver uh, more than just talk. He's expected to, to round up these individuals, arrest them. And we've had a lot of good uh, talk from his end, but, you know, the, the talk does not, 
deliver the goods. People are des- are desperate for action. And I just to piggyback on that thought process, I read a very interesting article written by a no stranger of the of this particular show, uh, Professor Bonang Mahali, uh, who wrote an article entitled "Ringleaders Fomenting Unrest Must Fail Food Might of the Law," which we all agree that that has to happen. You know, but he further he further goes on to say in a very similar article that an um, act of treason and sabotage against people. Property and the economy needs to be dealt with swiftly and decisively. Swiftly and decisively. Ramaphosa like those expression. Decisively and swiftly. And, and, and perhaps maybe when he's been echoed by someone else like Bonang, um, they just might be, they, that might just carry a different tone altogether. And we've noted that there have been just around, you know, 12, 12 known instigators of the looting and destruction. Despite the intelligent officials in apparently being in possession of um, cell phone numbers, tweets and videos, which they posted as they tried to inflame tensions. And the swear word in that particular sentence for me is this, the, the intelligence services. Why do I say the swear word? It's not like we, we, we did not see it coming. It's not like we did not know um, that uh, these kind of acts are almost inevitable. What I find perplexing is the contradictory stories from government officials. At one level, you hear the Minister of State Security saying, you know, to the journalist, record, we provided intel, you know, to the police about the insurgency. On the other level, on the other hand, the Minister of Police, Peggy Taylor, said, no, no, what are you talking about? You know, I've not received any reports. I've not received any intel on insurgents and so on and so forth. I mean, they, this just, it's mind boggling. You know, because this is about the credibility of leadership. There in there, they lost credibility whatsoever. Which, which in my mind begs the following questions. Should such people continue to hold high offices in the country? Is the ANC so deeply divided that such division finally found expression in the streets? Where is the deputy president? Where is Mabuza? I don't know. Perhaps maybe I'm reading different reports or media. Well, I haven't seen him. I've not seen any word from him. Is this deliberate? Or is it really recuperating from ailments that he's suffering from? But it's interesting. Because when your house is on fire, you expect leadership to be present. You expect leadership to provide confidence to those who desperately need it. And the other question for me is, does this provide the president an opportunity to reshuffle cabinet? We know that he squandered few of those opportunities. When Jackson Temple passed on, may he soul rest in peace, that was another opportunity, which did not happen. We had uh, the Minister of, of Health, uh, who was embroiled in some shenanigans. There was another opportunity, and it was squandered. We've got another opportunity now around the intelligence issues. When the Minister of Police says, I did not get any, who's, who's supposed to be accountable? So these are the issues that I think um, South Africans need to have conversation around and hold powers that be accountable. Anyway, those are my views. I welcome to hear yours. This is your show. 
Um, our SMS line is 34519. Telegram is 061-895-0095. And those are my views. I want to hear a lot more from you. As we proceed to much more juicier content, which um, will be shared uh, by the CEO of Plasma Default Research, Dr. Sifiso Falala, um, uh, uh, in just a short while. As I indicated earlier, that they have done this interesting research, uh, which which coincided with the civil unrest last week. So you give us a, a, a perspective on first what what was the research all about, the demographic of the research, sampling methodology, and so on and so forth, and ultimately what the outcomes of the research were. The interesting about any research, empirical research for that matter, is that. It, it accentuates key critical issues. We may all have our opinion, but sometimes opinions that are not based on empirical evidence are here and are neither here nor there. This is yet another opportunity for South Africans to reflect deeply on a basis of evidence which has been uh, presented. So I, I, I welcome this kind of engagement with Dr. Falala as he will give us a clear picture of what is it that they've been emerged to unearth you know, through this poll which they've done. And we'll also be joined by Justice Sindal, who's no longer a stranger to the show, who will give us also a perspective based on the presentation done by, you know, Dr. Falala, as it were. Without any waste of time, colleagues, let me take this opportunity to welcome you both. Dr. Falala, good evening and welcome. Uh, good evening, Dr. Mbele. Thank you for having me on your show. The pleasure is always indeed, my good sir. Mr. Ndaba? Welcome, welcome, my good How are you? <coughs> How are you, Doc? How are you, Dr. Falala? I'm in the company of doctors, I see. <laughs> so, great, thanks. Uh, nice to have you on board, uh, Justice. Without any waste of time, uh, so let's much. start with, with Dr. Falala as the, uh, you know, uh, the brainchild of this fascinating research output that you pulled it together. Uh, can you take us through um, the thinking broadly in terms of what what participated to you deciding to have this interesting uh, poll and, and, and also give us indicators, what is it that the poll looked at so that the listeners can, can follow through and hopefully at some point you disseminate the research outcomes to them so that they are able to ask questions if, if, they, if, if they so wish. Yeah, thank you so much, uh, Dr. Mbele. Um, we are a research company. Uh, we do research uh, all the time and only research. And uh, some of the research that we do uh, consists of uh, public opinion polls in order to help the public to understand topics that might be so important in their lives that they cannot afford not to have accurate information on. In the past few days, uh, say seven or to ten days ago, we've been confronted by a very difficult situation as a nation and one in which it appeared as if our justice system was up in the air and no one was quite sure or certain whether justice was a common cause in South Africa that everyone was interested in a society which had rules and, and regulations and that everyone accepted the idea of having those rules and regulations. So when such things happen, we do research to test that. And the best way of testing is to approach a representative uh, sample to ask them questions about 
how do they view uh, justice in South Africa? How important is it to have rules and regulations? How important is it to punish offenders or people that break the law? How important is it that everyone is treated equally uh, before the, the law? And so those were the types of questions that we set out to ask. The reason being that there was a lot of debate around what was right and what was wrong. And obviously the courts were extensively, extensively involved. And the missing piece of the puzzle was the ordinary person for whom the laws are meant um, uh, to be available. How do they feel about this? What are the statistics? To what extent do South Africans support the idea of a fair and equal justice system? So that, that is the background to the research, Dr. Mele. Thank you very much for that, uh, uh, you know, breakdown, which I think is quite fascinating, um, you know, um, either way how you look at it, particularly in the context of what we've seen uh, unraveling last week. Um, one person would be a logical uh, flow to this question is that give us a broad stroke view of the, the methodology. Because research, any research is underpinned by specific methodological questions or issues or imperatives. Um, so that anybody who's listening to the show tonight who is uh, interested in the outcome of this may follow through based on a clear understanding of uh, the approach. And I believe you've done uh, uh, sampling, you, you've, you've sampled as part of your, 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 your methodological approach. Take us through that a bit. Yes. Um, so the research was done in all nine provinces of South Africa, notwithstanding the fact that the riots or the unrest was confined to Gauteng and to KwaZulu-Natal. We covered all nine provinces because the justice system is a system for every South African. And we were interested in finding out what their perceptions were about the national justice system and also their views around some of the developments around former president uh, Jacob Zuma. So we uh, concluded the survey with a sample of 1,004 respondents and just for our listeners' uh, benefit, that is a margin of error of uh, 3%, uh, which means that it's quite an acceptable margin of error for a sample-based uh, survey. And that's the extent to which the survey is reliable. In other words, you can uh, add 3% or subtract 3% from the results that, that, that we give. We covered all the languages uh, proportionally and every age group was covered starting from the age of 18 years. And going up, we covered genders 51% females and 49% males, which again is a representative um, distribution of the South African uh, population. The whole idea um, was for the sample to be representative of the national population. And the reason why we do that in research is because all our findings are generalizable to the total population. In other words, when we come up with the result like now, uh, we should be able to make a firm conclusion about what we found uh, for the majority of the people because they all had an opportunity to be included in the survey. That's a very useful insight uh, because when I look at the report, 
a major segment of the society was somehow represented, as you have correctly pointed out, that we, you know, the, the, the constitutional imperatives cuts across the breadth and depth of the country. On that basis, it was important to have a representative sample of the demographics of the, of the, of the country's population so that we're able to get a sense on how South Africans are actually feeling uh, about the issues at hand. And I think that's a very useful observation for where I'm sitting. Can you personally take us through some of the critical salient points or characteristics of, um, you know, the, the sampling as it were? What sort of outcomes or issues that were revealed when you look at diff- or these different uh, variables that you have alluded to? Yeah, what is interesting is that uh, we looked at, um, uh, you know, language and um, and 25% with Zulu speaking, uh, 17% Kosa, 11% Swana, and all of, all of this is in line with our, our population. However, what we found very interesting was the, the income question. When you look at the income question, uh, 42% um, of the sample, given that they were all 18 and above, had no personal income. And uh, that, that, that's a worrying statistic, and it seems to endorse or corroborate the high unemployment figures that, that South Africa faces. And when one looks at those that had an income, you find that 35% had incomes of up to no more than 8,000 per month. Um, and you add those two together, then you now have 77% of the population that has an income that is under 8,000 that, that 8, rand. So when we looked at this, we got very worried and, and only 1% of the population has an income that is 60,000 rand and above about some of the basic um, uh, human rights and access to certain services and, and quality of life. And uh, consequently, the vulnerability of the population uh, by virtue of their income disposition to um, all kinds of reactions to being exploited and, and, and perhaps being used as pawns in, in, in political games. There were other things that we also looked at. Um, 82% of the sample was made up of Africans. Uh, Colors were 8%, whites were 9%, and we also had a representation then of the Asian Indian population at 2%. So that kind of gives you the the, the length and breadth of uh, the composition of the sample. Thank you very much for that insight. But you know, interestingly, when you look at the the the, the breakdown of the sample in terms of 82% being black, um, you know, colored being eight, uh, 8% and whites being 9%, and Asian being 2%, what are the you know what are the common threads or what are the common issues that that cuts across these, you know, um, uh, categories of individuals or groups in response to critical, in response to critical questions that you raised. Uh, did you find any common thread or there were deviations or could you just maybe give us a reflection on how the findings or to what extent which the findings you obtained resonated or cut across the, the classification which you have alluded to. Yeah, there, there were certain things that, uh, and the most important things were common to all the groups. Um, let's talk now 
about the importance of the of having a justice system. In other words, having rules and laws for for everyone and punishing those that broke the laws as well as having ensuring that everyone was equal under the law. That was common to all the groups. You would have slight differences. In other words, you'd have a greater emphasis. Uh, for instance, among certain groups, like your females would emphasize more the idea that offenders should be punished. They would rate the importance of having a, a justice system slightly higher than the males without saying that the males were um, less appreciative of the of the of having a justice system but only emphasizing the fact that the females felt that it was cr- critically important more critically important than the males did and there were other areas where for instance on some of the issues relating to whether or not an offender could disobey an order of a court uh, you would find that certain races like the Asian race and, and the African race would have a slightly higher percentage of those that were saying, yes, you could if you disagree with what the court has said. And then amongst the white population, you'd find that there were slightly fewer uh, people than the national average who said you could disagree. So we did find this, these differences, and particularly by income. And what was striking is that those with a much higher income over 60,000 and those with uh, uh, no income at all and a very low income were more likely to behave in ways that were atypical of the average. So they could, on the one hand, decide that we don't like this and therefore we are not going to uh, live in accordance with what the law is, is saying. And the vulnerable low-income groups to the groups that didn't have an income at all, they were also more likely to say, you know what, I don't care anymore, I am not going to do uh, this, Um, even if it's against the law, I will break the law. Which just goes to show um, how vulnerability creates a risky situation, not just for those that are affected, but the rest of society. Very interesting observation there. Let me, I just want to bring justice. Uh, when you talk about justice, I'll bring justice. How does it? <laughs> uh, you know, justice, very interesting observations or outcome of this particular research. Um, uh, FISA says to us there's about 8% of those who earn between 25,000 to 60,000 rands constituted 1%. You know, um, of, of the entire, you know, population uh, sample. What does it mean for South Africa? To what extent this finding reinforces inequalities in the country? Yeah, Doug, I think the I'm still going through the numbers myself, but it's concerning indeed. But I guess if you follow the presentation and the findings by um, Dr. Falala, you would and you maybe you jump to the section on the awareness of economic variables. You could see already there that the respondents were placing the issue of unemployment high, very high on um, the economic variables that they looked at. So the concern for unemployment seems to be the concern of um, a representative of all the population groups. So one has to look at that and I I would imagine, I don't know how, how true would that be that 
hence it was so easy that any emotional issue can really trigger the response that we've seen because I mean it it's it basically might mean on from my own percep- perspective and perception that um we have been sitting on a time bomb for 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 a while uh, in actual fact so the trigger was bound to happen at some point it just so happens that it was um the issue of 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 the former president in this case i don't know how correct that would be no no that's a, that's a useful um, perspective which perhaps maybe south africans can resonate with uh, but I tell you what, we've got literally have to go buy bread and milk. Fortunately, everything is available. Uh, let's let's quickly um, go to break, and we'll come back um, on the very same issue that Justice spoke about. Um, that is the the whole issue of inequality, um, which has been reinforced by the research findings of Plus Ninety Four Research. Let's pay our bills. We'll come back in a second. Beyond Governance, Making Sense of Doing Business in South Africa is proudly sponsored by Plus94 Research, the science of decision-making. Welcome back. It is now 18 minutes. Um, it's about 28 minutes to 7 o'clock. If you've just joined us, we are joined online by um, Dr. Sefisa Falala, who is the um, CEO at Plus94 Research, and we're going through an interesting uh, opinion poll which they've conducted about a week ago, uh, displaying some of the interesting um, socioeconomic uh, 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 issues or they pose sort of a number of socioeconomic uh, questions in that particular opinion poll, which gives us a sense or at least embed the, 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 the narrative around the civil unrest. Um, and we also joined by Justice Ndaba, who before the, <clears throat> before the, the break, I wanted, you know, uh, his view regarding the, the outcome of, of income um, uh, discrepancies based on a very small sample which is done but when you extrapolate that sample you get to see and feel how South Africans are which um, uh, uh, when he you know uh, we agree with him when he said this has been a ticking bomb we've been sitting on this uh, issue for a very long time and we have not had any solution to it just this person maybe just to run up that particular issue we have said here there's obviously, I mean, only 8% of the sample um, and had income of between 25,000 to 6,000 rands. And mind you, I'm 1%. And, and I'm saying, um, and perhaps maybe Sifiso can come through here. When we have to extrapolate that, and, and it, it actually accentuate the income generation, and perhaps maybe this is why South Africa has, has earned a position in the world of of being the most unequal society uh, in the world, and and surely that on its own carries a whole lot of 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 underlying uh, issues that are pretty much like a volcano that is waiting to to rot. Surely, what you've seen um, by incarceration of uh, the former president was just a a spark that was inevitable. It could have been anybody else. Um, it happened to it happened to be Jacob Zuma, but it could have been anybody else of of, of political so significance. How true is that um, supposition, Justice? Well, it's quite true in the sense that 
I mean, if you look at, I think the, 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 it, it really begins to convince me of the reliability of this survey plus by, plus, uh, by Dr. Fadal. Because, I mean, recently the statistic where, um, SA uh, issued the stats, the latest stats, uh, population stats. And in there, you would remember there's a new confirmation that we, we have hit the 16 million mark as a population. And in there, you would you would remember that one of the slides um, I, I'm, I'm trying to open it, but I can't see. But one of the slides was saying that uh, people of um, 28 years and below accounted to 38 million of that 60 million. So by far the largest number. And if that number, none of them are in any position to earn any income, um, you are likely to have, um, because, I mean, uh, if you look at many of the, the looters, some of them couldn't even attest to why they were there in some instances. But the, the manner in which they went about in the looting best explains their attitude and the, 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 the obviously we're not condoning what people were doing in terms of looting, but it explains clearly, I mean, if we have more than half of the population that is under 28, which is uh, the youth level and children who are 38 million, and half of those have never earned an income or are earning nothing at all, that best explains wh why we are where we are. And you can see with the trends that we're beginning to see where every concern of every citizen is about addressing the issue of unemployment, just as much as if you look at, um, uh, uh, well, I see, I see Dr. Uh, Judge Moseneke now has postponed the election. I think it will begin to tell the manner in which the, uh, the, 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 the governing party has done in terms of addressing that question will determine whether they survive this next election or not, because clearly the majority of the people that whose issues are not being addressed are sitting there at almost half the population or just over half the population, 60% really. So so I, I, I can see the reliability of this survey now. Thanks for that observation, Justice. One issue that you raised, which is bringing me to a follow-up question um, around the research itself, is the Constitution, which has been the, the, the central theme which gave rise to the incarceration of uh, President Zuma, as it were. Sifiso, in your research, you, you've pointed out to us that um, there's been about 24% of, uh, your, of, of your respondents who understood the, the constitutional court um, as protecting and preserving the rules as defined in the constitution. And, and give us a, a, a breakdown. Why 24%? One would have thought the the numbers would be slightly higher. What does that mean from your perspective? Yeah, so. I think what we have to accept now, and if there's one thing that we must learn from the experience of the past week, is that we do have an unequal society. And that that inequality is not just 
in terms of access to funds, access to employment. It is also in terms of access to critical information. We assume that everybody has read uh, the Constitution. We assume that everybody has a copy of the Constitution. Nothing could be further from the truth. Spontaneously, the Constitution to the majority of people is just that, a, a, a word constitution, and they know that uh, it is supposed to serve us. It is the way in which our justice system operates. And only 10% could say, I know that the constitutional court is there to do this. It is the apex court. And then you had 10% who then said, I actually don't even know what the constitutional court is all about. And then you begin to wonder um, about given that this is the level of awareness and the level of knowledge, to what extent was the unrest, for example, based on full information and full knowledge of the issues that were at stake? And so this is the risk that, 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 that we face. It's not just about the constitution, but also the constitutional uh, court. Um, the difference between, say, a high court the Supreme Court of Appeal and a magistrate court um, is not clearly articulated in the minds of the majority of the people. And once again, one begins to question the education system uh, and whether or not these things should not be taught at primary school. Because if such information is made available at a young age, it is important to equip every citizen to be able to uh, deal with life's challenges in in a, in a much in a, in a much better way than we've seen demonstrated the past a few days. I couldn't agree with you more, um, Sifiso. I couldn't <laughs> agree with you more, particularly when you are reflecting on on the the level of knowledge and the extent to which in in in, in bridging that gap, we obviously have to infuse some of these uh, instruments in the education system. So that learners and kids, everybody else who go through the system, aren't only only exposed to it later, uh, but they are exposed to it, um, you know, right from 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 um, you know, uh, elementary level up to the highest level of the education system, as it were, purely because they will the the, the chances of being susceptible to political manipulation will, will be far lower when they have grasped. The, and, the, and, and understood various, um, you know, uh, judicial instruments that is available in terms of who does what under which circumstances. Um, Justice, on that very same point, would you agree with me by saying most people are gullible purely because the level of understanding as expressed by the research outcome that majority of people 24%, you can extrapolate it to the entire country, does indicate that the level of understanding is so low or so shallow to a point where politicians can manipulate, um, you know, these things to, for their own political ends. And, and what should be the solution going forward? Um, thank you, Doc. Uh, actually, I had made a point. Um, in fact, when I read the presentation, I picked up um, this section of understanding of the Constitution and the Constitutional Court. And then I, I underlined the section on the perceived nature of fairness of the law. 
then I underline the other one of Jacob Zuma case, whether the percentage of fairness vis-a-vis unfairness, and then the other one on awareness of economic variables. And one reason that you just alluded to, why I also underline this one on the understanding of the Constitution, it's, it's an illustration of our bare failure in um, enhancing the constitutional democracy. Because if you recall, um, around 98 or so, there was an uh, attempt to to popularize the constitution. Um, I mean, there were programs in the newspapers over a period of time to, 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 to highlight certain sections of the constitution. But that soon died down in the early 2000. And, um, and as if everything was now hunky doris. So it shows you now that we have really failed our people in that respect. And that begins to show when you see the quality. As an example, if you were to visit any branch of any of the political parties and you listen to the conversations that are happening there and how uh, those conversations are happening, this point is illustrative of that because even because branches are supposed to be the ones that are fundamental in discussing uh, constitutional issues and, 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 and manifestos and so on and so forth. And yet, um, it's as if this point was done deliberately not to uh, educate the population about the constitution so that at a later stage you can take advantage of them politically. So I don't know really. That is why I, I tend to agree with the point by Dr. Falala that perhaps the, D, uh, the Department of Education, it could be a point, meaning we could maybe take this uh, uh, opportunity to talk to them that the curriculum in schools really have to, has to be looked at because we have failed our population in that regard because clearly there's, there's a huge gap. You can't have 24%. And this was just spontaneous. Uh, but I, I can tell you, even if the numbers are likely to be lower, even if it was directive, where you would see, you would see in the manner in which people um, look at the issue of constitution at large that the understanding of the constitution itself is quite low within the, the popular. Um, we saw it when we, for instance, there were public uh, presentations of the land issue. Remember, the, there were quite a number of public presentations. If you looked at that and you see some of the responses and the presentations by the uh, uh, members at large, you see the lack of understanding of the population. Uh, especially at that point, I think the, the, the issue was Section 25, which dealt with the land issue. But insofar as that is concerned, I think everyone has failed us, including the media in that sense. Because, I mean, in the beginning, everyone had attention to the issue of the Constitution. Remember, some of it we could even find for free, the small books that summarize the Constitutions. You'll find that in, no more anywhere else nowadays. So it means that, um, by and large, this outcome reinforces uh, um, uh, why we have this low percentage in terms of, of, of this output. It means that, and what is also concerning is the issue that, uh, for instance, our population might be alluding to the fact that um, they don't see the constitutional court as preserving the rules of the court.
I mean, that should be concerning. On the very same point, I want to take um, one of, a follow-up question uh, with Dr. Falala here. Uh, one of the um, variables that she looks at is the perceived nature of law, of of law fairness, or, or you know, yeah. or, 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 nature of fairness. Yeah. So um, that that's something that echoes what Justice is talking about. Can you just take us through the breakdown and what are the salient points based on your your your, your sample, um, Dr. Falala? Yes, um, the the law itself is expected to be fair, and um, the majority, 79% of South Africans, wanted everyone to be equal under the law. In other words, because you are famous or powerful, you shouldn't have preferential treatment under the law or be exempt from the need to follow the, the law. And, and that was equaled. Um, in other statements, such as um, the law is for ordinary citizens. It's not just for ordinary people. The law is for everyone. That was 83%. Uh, percent. And that politicians should be treated differently when in conflict with the law. That was disputed very strongly by 89%. However, what is very interesting is that there is a strong feeling, and, and of course we've shown initially the, the income statistics demonstrate that the majority of the population is poor. There's a strong feeling that the law is biased towards the rich, the influential, the powerful that can actually challenge it in, in court and possibly understand it better. And further that the law is biased towards the ruling elite. And that was very concerning because uh, you had 74% believing that the law favors the rich and influential and 65% believing that the law um, is, is biased towards the ruling elite. So that, that, that really um, uh, got us thinking as to why, because if there's that um, uh, perception, you would then begin to see doubts about the veracity, authenticity, and legitimacy of the law if it is perceived to apply more to some members of the population and less to others, which is where the whole Jacob Zuma uh, issue became critical because the perception amongst the respondents wasn't whether or not Jacob Zuma was guilty. It was whether or not he was being scapegoated because he represented perceptibly the interests of the poor and perceptibly he wasn't in that elite, that influential group, and therefore was not being exempted. So now you have a situation where there's a perception that some are being exempted, others are not being exempted. While we love this this law, uh, because it keeps everything together and keeps everything in order, but we still think that there's a problem with it. So that's the concerning thing that we found with these results. On the very same point, Sefiso, what could have been the reason behind this perception that the law favors the rich, favors the influence? Could it be that, um, you know, could it be that what people have experienced and have seen over time has given them an impression that if you are not rich, if you're not a member of the elite, uh, you, you, you therefore are discarded. Um, and, and I suppose people are seeing, you know, 
you know, uh, opulence being thrown into their faces and whether issues around corruption, maladministration in the zonal commission and so on and so forth, there is not really much evidence which suggests the notion of equality before the law. Could that be the reason why um, this this perception is so high about, you know, law uh, being biased towards those that um, have means? I don't think it's a, it's a, it's something that arose in the past seven days or arose in the past 24, 27 years. It is something that probably has been with us for longer. And, um, it is part, um, of the evidence which tells us that our society is heavily skewed towards, uh, the, the wealthy in terms of the Gini coefficient, but also in terms of access to facilities and, and livestock to such an extent that there is perhaps a lack of trust um, of, of, of the wealthy by the poor. And another thing that um, has played out a lot in our courts over the recent years is the number of appeals, not just the number of appeals, but also the number of commissions of inquiry. Mm-hmm. Almost Every case gets challenged and goes to the Supreme Court of Appeal if it's a court case that is in, in the in the in the High Court. If it's defeated in the Supreme Court of Appeal, then it goes to the Constitutional Court, and this happens with nearly all uh, high-profile cases. So the population is watching all of this, and they don't have access to be appealing. And mind you, a lot of these cases that are high profile and are lost at the uh, high court level, they are sometimes even lost with costs, and yet they still persist and they are represented at at a higher level. So the population is watching all of this and, and how they themselves would not be able to have access to that level of engagement. Uh, with the courts and therefore they can see clearly the society is unfair to them. It makes it a mockery, therefore. That's my conclusion based on what you've just said. It makes a mockery of the constitutional principles or, or, or the ethos of constitution insofar as equality before the law. That, that flies against, that flies completely out when, um, you know, because no uh, legal representation is not cheap which means very few people can access uh, legal representation. Even the state-funded legal representation is inundated with, um, you know, so many people, of which uh, those that want to have their cases fast-tracked, would all, the, the, the only way out is to secure a private, um, you know, a prosecution or, or private legal representation. That makes it a mockery. And I think that's the biggest tragedy of this country. Um, if we were to secure confidence from the population, uh, we better give them instruments, we give them access to information about what works, what does not work. Bring back, you know, the program around constitutions and constitutionalism. Bring back um, the whole understanding of rights versus obligations. Because the, on, on the other issue that I've also observed, which may or may not necessarily uh, be true at this point in time is that there's been emphasis on rights and less on obligation. You know, in our schooling environment, in the workplace environment, and so on and so forth, emphasis is on rights and less on obligation. For every right that you enjoy it must be accompanied by equal responsibility. So, so it goes to show that 
there's so much learning that has to be deliberate on the side of those who are leading us in so far as giving us a clearer uh, uh, picture so that citizens are able to make informed choices and decisions based on the knowledge. It can't be that when things like this happen and we, we, we ask people about constitution, which we know that we have not done anything substantial to empower them, to, to enlighten them about that, that particular understanding. Would that be incorrect assumption or incorrect supposition, Dr. Flala? No, I think you uh, uh leading on to something that's very important there. The country faces a moral dilemma, but also an investment dilemma. And, and one of the things that we've never actually discussed uh, directly as a country is who is responsible for the poor. It is very easy for business to think that it is the government. And it is very easy for the government to say we provide facilities for businesses to thrive. And as businesses thrive, they will employ our people and provide them with, for example, access to things like legal aid and, 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 and judges and prosecutors and so on and so forth. And as a society and as business, we need to realize that um, we cannot separate or detach ourselves from the poor because in a society we are one society and and the poor are also a part of of us and to that extent the worst that they can experience if we don't deal with those things they will those things will then visit us so that's the challenge that i would present to business and and, and every business business person and listening that we the the people that are in business uh, and informed are responsible to a large degree uh, uh, for the poor. It's not just government alone. Thank you very much for that. And I I certainly agree with that uh, position that you're holding for we cannot have, um, you know, uh, island of prosperity in the sea of poverty. The statistics that you have alluded to and clearly pointing us to us are indication of where South Africa is and and it is unsustainable. We know that. And it's upon us as 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 individual organizations and sort of so forth to move with speed. Unfortunately, uh Dr. Falala, there's so much that you have not unraveled, there's so much that we have not talked about. Perhaps maybe we may have to follow up this particular conversation uh, uh in, you know in a short while. For there are other uh you know uh findings which we have not talked about because of, of time constraints. But I certainly hope the listener out there has benefited extensively by by embedding uh, you know, the assumption with the facts because we are all entitled to, to our own opinions. But opinions ought to be better by facts. And what you have done today uh, was to present us with factual information about where South Africa is 